The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Hello and welcome to our Value Investing Insight Talk on the issues facing the banking sector globally, the recent market volatility, and some deep discounts that may be attractive long-term plays for both U.S. and international equity investors. I am Jeb Tether, a Senior Investment Strategist at the Texas Investment Managers. Joining me today are two seasoned equity managers from value-focused Harris Associates, the advisor of the Oakmark Funds. On the domestic side, we have Mike Nicholas, a partner, portfolio manager, and U.S. investment analyst, and his counterpart on the international side, Jason Long. Jason is a partner, portfolio manager, and senior international investment analyst. Gentlemen, we have a lot to unpack here, given First Republic's, excuse me, First Republic Bank's takeover by J.P. Morgan Chase at the start of May and the ongoing volatility in regional banks that we've seen since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank back in early March of this year. So let's dive right in. Mike, let's start with you. Markets were rocked with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. All banks saw increased volatility in their stock prices. What was your take on the situation at the time? Jeb, first of all, thanks for for hosting Jason and I today. Uh, Pleasure to to be with you. Um, I remember being at dinner with a few friends on on Thursday, March the 9th, and um, you know Silicon Valley stock price had declined rapidly that trading day, something like 60% after its last minute attempt to raise capital had failed, and word was spreading that the bank was was technically insolvent. Um, you know, a, a friend of mine had received a text while we were at dinner that night from a friend of his in the venture industry. And it basically read that everyone he knows is pulling money from the bank and that he's hearing rumors that Silicon Valley Bank was likely to fold imminently. Um, you know, it's not too often that you you see a bank with greater than 200 billion in assets seemingly vanish overnight. So, of course, my initial reaction was was one of high alert. Our team really quickly began reaching out to all of our bank CEOs and assessing a number of important health indicators for our own holdings. You know, as we do each time we encounter market turmoil, we carefully assess the risk profiles of all of our holdings. So we scrutinized their liquidity profiles, their deposit franchises, the stability of their funding sources, um, of course, the regulatory capital levels. And this this analysis really reinforced our belief that our banks had strong liquidity and, and comfortably positive tangible book value, even after marking all the loans and the securities to market. So, you know, many of our holdings were already deemed to be systemically important banks, which which effectively means they were held to a higher standard as it relates to capital and liquidity relative to some of the smaller troubled banks. But you know, stepping back for a moment, uh, you know, I think the business of banking, accepting deposits and extending loans, it really demands that bank managers take calculated risks in order to earn competitive returns. You know, they must they must carefully manage credit risk and prepayment risk. Um, liquidity risk, interest rate risk, uh, a number of different factors. And I think during the last credit-driven banking crisis that we saw, the GFC, we were really reminded that having a highly diversified loan portfolio is critically important. And I think today's issues are driven more, of course, by by liquidity risk and asset liability imbalances, um, a duration duration mismatch. And you know what we're now reminded of is the importance of having a, a really diversified highly granular deposit franchise and a strong stable funding profile. And I think SVB was a, was a real extreme example of the consequences of poor risk management. But the good thing about duration issues, unlike credit problems, is that they naturally cure themselves over time. These bonds will eventually be worth par, but you do need the liquidity profile to be, be able to wait it out. 
Um, so it was really the nature of SVB's liabilities, this deposits that ultimately toppled the company. Okay. Um, just one one follow-up question for you, Mike. So what is the, the collapse of SVB and the, the subsequent collapses that we've seen? What does that mean for the future of small versus large banking? Do you think that there will be more regulation in place? Um, we do. I think there's I think it means a couple of things. On the regulatory front, um, I think smaller banks will 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 face more scrutiny moving forward. And the 2007 rule that exempted smaller banks from certain portions of the Fed stress test could be rescinded. Um, yeah, there's some liquidity and, and loss absorbing capital rules that apply to the larger banks that could also be applied to the smaller banks moving forward. Um, I think to better reflect the the asset liability issues that we've seen, you could see at least some, possibly all of the losses within the available for uh, available for sale securities portfolio count against regulatory capital for the smaller banks. Um, you know, similar to how they already do for the largest ones, and this list could probably go on. I think, from our perspective, all of our banks um, rank amongst the top 25 in America, and in our view, are are very well positioned to be able to. Um, to adhere to any changes that they they don't already meet. I think the other trend that you're likely to see is is um, is a continuation of the consolidation, perhaps even an acceleration of it that we've been seeing for years. You know, banking is a business with large economies of scale. And we typically see material reductions in non-interest expense when when two similarly sized banks end up merging. So the economic rationale is pretty compelling. And because of this dynamic, we've already seen, um, you know, meaningful consolidation over the last 40 years. The number of banks in America has dropped from something north of 14,000 to just 4,200 today. So we think it's only natural for that for that consolidation path to continue. And you know, in many developed markets, the deposit share for the biggest banks is already far in excess to what we see in the U.S. And part of this is attributable to the inability of some of the bigger money center banks to participate in this consolidation for regulatory rules. Um, but I, I would expect um, uh, further consolidation as um, some of these smaller banks, um, frankly, probably struggle to meet the service and product offerings of the bigger ones. Okay, thanks, Mike. So sounds like uh, we're gonna be seeing some more consolidation in the future going forward. Uh, switching gears, uh, over to you, Jason. Now, at the same time uh, that we saw domestic banks, you know kind of come down in price. We saw European banks trade down quite sharply as well. Uh, Credit Suisse was merged into UBS. What were your thoughts on the European financials at the time? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the opportunity, Jeb. We've, we've definitely seen um, European banks get caught up in, in the recent uh, share price volatility. Um, you know, that said, we, we think there are some some very important differences between uh, our current European, European bank holdings and the more idiosyncratic risk management issues that plague Credit Suisse or, or some of the balance sheet challenges uh, that have faced a few uh, U.S. regional banks that, that Mike discussed earlier. Um, you know, looking at those those banking systems in, in detail, I think when you look at the U.S. regional banking challenges in a bit more detail, it's important to note that there are some pretty significant differences between the two banking systems. You know, as Mike mentioned earlier, there are some important regulatory differences between the two banking systems where the U.S. has a bit more of a multi-tier regulatory system with smaller U.S. regional banks benefiting from more regulatory and accounting flexibility as compared to the larger U.S. banks and really Europe just has they, they treat all banks equally. So small and large size banks are are competing on a more level playing field in Europe. Um, so that's resulted in a um, you know a few things I'd say. One, you have a more consolidated banking market, um, as Mike alluded to earlier. 
you know, in, in the UK, top five banks are 75%, similar in France. I think Italy is closer to 50% for the top five. So a more consolidated banking system, uh, if you look at deposit market share than what you'd see in the US. Uh, the other thing I'd point out too, is just the, the European banks have, have much better asset liability matching than these troubled US regionals that we were discussing earlier. And, and that's contributed to significantly lower unrealized losses on their balance sheets. Uh, they also possess quite strong and, and diversified granular deposit franchises, uh, coupled with their superior scale provides for, for relative funding cost advantages. Um, so these differences, are, I, I think, are quite important. We're not seeing the same level of stress or bank failures in Europe as we've seen in some of the smaller banks in the U.S. So we really see that, that, that recent share price volatility impacting the European banks as being overdone and really providing more of an opportunity to pick up some overly discounted shares of a select group of larger and safer bank, banking institutions. Okay, great. Um, how do you think the European banking system will evolve from a competitive and regulatory perspective, Jason? Yeah, interesting question. I, I'd say, um, you know, a bit of a similar take is what Mike mentioned, but there are there are some, some differences as well. Maybe starting with 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 the differences on the rate, starting with the regulatory side, uh, we don't expect the regulatory environment to change that materially in Europe. Um, I think it's important to understand how much more stringent the European regular has been since the GFC. They require they've required the banks to have much higher levels of capital and liquidity. If you look at this stricter regulation, uh, it's resulted in the European banks increasing their core regulatory capital ratios by more than 250% since the GFC. Uh, so the, the EU banks now have a CET1 ratio of nearly 14%. It's significantly greater than what we had before. Um, I would say you also see a significant improvement in the liquidity ratios as well. Uh, and, and you also see just the European banks as a whole have a bit of a different mix on their loan portfolios, you know, a bit more mortgages and some lower, lower risk assets. Uh, and we think that, you know, it's really that the capital levels are strong. You haven't had asset quality issues. You've got much better asset liability management than the smaller banks. So we think the incremental regulatory pressures in Europe will be quite limited overall. Um, as to the potential changes in the competitive landscape, I think that's where you'd I think see a lot of comparability there and see some, some more similarities. Um, you know, historically, we've seen periods of volatility lead to a flight to quality or flight to safety whereby the larger banks are viewed as relative safe havens. And that in turn has led to consolidation in the market. And I would expect this trend to continue, you know, as those structurally advantaged banks become even stronger. Um, Mike, Mike mentioned some of the advantages you have um, of, of putting banks together and really be having a much more efficient cost structure, you know, huge scale advantages there. So we would expect those those stronger banks to further improve their operations and become even stronger. And I've mentioned, in fact, you know, our three largest bank holdings, um, Lloyd's, BNP, and Intesa, have all created value by utilizing their strong balance sheets and excess capital to behave opportunistically via both organic and inorganic growth options. So we don't model in assume value creation uh, via incremental growth, organic growth or M&A as a result of some of this uncertainty, but we do think it's a real possibility that would add even additional upside uh, optionality to, to these names. Great, thank you, Jason. Um, moving back to you, Mike. So the latest news and really what's happened since 2008 has left many investors questioning the value of investing in banks. 
How do you respond to that? What do you think demonstrates that these are still very good businesses? Uh, yeah, I understand the sentiment because it has felt as though you know the banks are always caught up in some form of turmoil. Um, I, I think the scars from the GFC have clearly yet to fully heal at this point. And um, in our view, investors are still, um, in some respects, fighting the last war. Um, you know, the biggest banks are being appropriately penalized by the market today for having lower returns versus, say, you know, prior to the to, to the GFC. Um, and that's because some of the things that Jason was just mentioning, you know, capital requirements are higher, liquidity levels are higher, leverage is therefore lower. And, um, you know, frankly, some felines have just been regulated out of existence. But, you know, the flip side um, is that the banks we own today are, are healthier than they were then. Um, they have more loss absorbing capital. They have more liquidity. Their tier one capital ratios are up substantially. Um, their underwriting track record has been very good. They own some of the lowest cost um, most valuable deposit franchises in the world, and their fundamental business performance has been has been generally solid. So, while the return profiles of the larger banks um, are a bit lower than they were historically, um, you know the risk profiles are lower as well, which which argues for a lower discount rates. Um, you know our banks are receiving no credit for that today, um, but it's not crystal clear to us that that the business value of a large bank should be down substantially as a result. Now. No one would argue that these are some of our better businesses. You know, they trade for a fraction of the market's multiple. Um, we just believe they're better businesses than the mid-single digit or high single digit multiple of normal earnings um, uh, that they trade for would, would suggest, you know. And um, one more point, you know, unlike the last financial crisis where the biggest banks were were clearly a major part of the problem, I think this time around, um, they're clearly attempting to be part of the solution as they were during COVID. Um, so we've come a long way. So it sounds like the ba the bank's businesses have really transformed themselves. Um, sticking with you, Mike. So earnings season for banks has just concluded here in the United States. Mm -hmm. What have you learned from any of these recent earnings reports? What are the banks saying about the implications of the collapse of SVB and the other ones that we've seen? Yeah, I think what we've learned so far out of the first quarter is that the the totality of issues that plagued SVP, SVB, and a few other um, troubled financial institutions appear to be more more the exception than the rule. I think deposits at large were down year over year during the first quarter, but the magnitude of the decline was was largely within previous expectations. And some of our de strongest deposit franchises, like a like a Bank of America or a Wells Fargo, saw really negligible deposit movement. So I think we'll see shifts from non-interest bearing deposits to interest bearing and, and money funds, money market funds. So funding costs are likely to increase almost across the board. And this will pressure earnings in the short term, but it's not an existential threat. Um, you know, we don't lose too much sleep over a few years of lower than expected earnings estimates because the impact to business value is, is typically quite modest. Um, I'd say the commentary around the consumer was still quite healthy from the banks, but also, you know, the credit bureaus and the payment companies we follow. Um, you know, wages are still growing, employment is full, uh, the consumer continues to spend, and credit is normalizing, but from a very low base. So. Generally speaking, I think our takeaway was that things were were better than feared and that the fundamentals of our banks remain um, quite healthy, much healthier than the stock price charts would suggest. Okay, great. Uh, Jason, sticking with the earnings discussion, uh, what have you learned from recent European bank earnings that you follow? Yeah, I mean, broadly positive and, and remarkably, you know, somewhat similar to, to what Mike just said as well on, on the U.S. names. And I think that, you know, the 
strong results, profitability greater than estimates, uh, really across for all of our our, our large European bank holdings. Uh, you know, relatively strong revenue growth with controlled operating expense growth, despite that higher inflationary environment um, that we've seen. So, so solid cost control. Uh, deposit franchises have performed relatively well. Uh, you know, the, the banks that we own have very strong low-cost franchises, and and they've been beneficiaries of that flight to quality. Uh, relatively benign credit conditions um, with both reported and underlying credit costs coming in better than expected. This has all really led to, to excellent capital generation, which has enabled the banks to, to increase the amount of capital that they're returning to shareholders, both via dividends and via buybacks. So very positive overall Q1 results. Uh, we would expect to see, uh, as Mike mentioned, we'd expect to see, you know, maybe a bit of uh, an inflection, some net, net interest margin pressure uh, in the short term. But that's very short term for some of these banks. We think that, you know, those deposit franchises are intact and, and, and we expect a strong performance going forward. Great. So it sounds like what the banks are saying uh, is a lot better than what the uh, the headlines in the media are saying, which is, I guess, pretty typical. Now, that's correct. This this next question is for for both of you. Why don't you answer it first, Jason? Um, and it has to do with inter rate, interest rate increases. So interest rate increases are usually good for banks. Now, with short bonds yielding significantly higher than deposits, banks are under pressure to pay more on those deposits. What does this mean for the banks as we do look ahead? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think and it kind of alluded to this on when we were talking about the Q1 results, how you are seeing a bit of a nim pressure in the short term. But you are correct in that rate rises are typically a positive tailwind for to bank profitability. And that's particularly the case for for banks with strong and low cost deposit franchises, which is a key characteristic of, of, of all the banks that we own, both on the U.S. side as well as on the, the international side. So those higher bond yields have resulted in, in greater competition for deposits. You've seen that both from traditional banks as well as from money market funds. Um, there have been some notable differences, I'd say, between the, the U.S. and European markets. Uh, first of all, you know, interest rate rises have been much more pronounced uh, to date in the U.S. than they have in, in with the ECB or banks uh, under supervision of ECB. Uh, the U.S. banking market is also a bit more fragmented, which I think has resulted in a bit more higher you know, competitive intensity. And also the, the the money market penetration is higher in the U.S. than it is in Europe, so a bit less risk of disintermediation on on the Europe side. But overall, we expect those higher rates will be a benefit. It's just not you know a, a step basis. You do have some, some some timing differences of when some of these deposits price, uh, and, and also when some of the assets reprice. So overall, positive for the banks uh, over a medium time period. Great, um, Mike. Do you have a take on that question? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, the one thing that a rising rate environment will do is I, I think it'll make it easier um, for an investor to, to really be able to distinguish the best deposit franchises from the average ones, which frankly was was incredibly difficult to do in a low rate environment when everybody's paying zero. So, um, you know, in, in our view, um, you know, the dynamic you reference is clearly putting pressure on funding costs for most every bank. But the the bigger banks we own, like like a Wells or a BAC, um, should be pretty well positioned on a relative basis. You know they've got a higher mix of of non-interest bearing deposits. Their deposit betas are much lower than the industry. Long tenured depositors, um, highly diversified base, um, typically used as operating accounts for everyday transactions, not as sweep accounts. So, um, you know the the higher rate environment should allow these these better franchises to really shine. Um, and as Jason pointed out too, I mean, it, it is putting pressure 
on the funding side of the the balance sheet. Um, but you know the asset side is still repricing as well, and we've only had these higher rates um, in existence for a little over a year, and the duration of a typical loan book is much longer than that. So I think you'll continue to see um, book yields migrating higher toward market rates, which which should serve to to blunt some of the increase in in funding costs or deposit rates that we'll see moving forward. Um, this next question is also for the for the both of you, but Mike, why don't you go first? It has to do with recession. Does recession concern you? Um, are you concerned about an increase in credit loss or excuse me, credit costs or loan defaults? Um, yeah, of course, we're we're always concerned about things like that, but we know that a recession is likely to occur once every seven or eight years. And, um, you know, the one we we may be entering into has been pretty well telegraphed. Um, you know, a lot of the, the due diligence work that we do up front, Jeb, is really focused on, on ensuring that our banks can withstand a very severe recession and, and other negative externalities for that matter. And, you know, thankfully we have a few additional tools at our disposal today, like like the Fed's, you know, an, annual stress test. They're, they're certainly not perfect, but, they can serve as a as a pretty useful proxy for how a given bank may perform in a in a nasty economic environment with spiraling unemployment and large declines in real GDP and and significant asset price destruction. I think you know in the shorter term credit costs um, are likely to continue to normalize, but remember that in many instances we're just climbing back to 2019 levels, which um, in and of itself were were that was a blow trend yield year for bad debt expense. Um, you know, there are concerns in pockets of the market, um, you know, in the consumer space like subprime auto and commercial, I think CRE, uh, particularly office today. So we're watching these areas closely. But, you know, for our bigger banks, the exposures to to office as a percentage of total loans is very low. Um, think low to mid single digit. And the reserves against those have been have been increasing quite a bit. The LTVs on those loans are nothing like they looked um, entering the GFC. So I think zooming out, the underlying quality has improved a lot, as as has the capital level since the GFC. Um, you know, if you take Bank of America, for example, it's had the lowest loan loss rate of the big banks, I think in 11 of the past 12 Fed stress tests. So, um, you know, importantly, with any cyclical or economically sensitive company, we're always valuing that business on a mid-cycle basis. We're always trying to incorporate the, the sunny days and the stormy days that will be that they'll inevitably have to face. And our goal is to is to strike a value that's reflective of of mid cycle earnings power, and we do embed a, a pretty nasty recession um, into those normal estimates. So, um, you know, we we're monitoring all all of the the metrics quite closely here that we um, that we care about in terms of the long term health of our banks. Um, but um, yeah, we we try to get ahead of these things into our into our in our analysis. Okay, great. So as long term investors, you're just assuming that during the duration of your holding period, the environment will be normal. Um, Jason, how about for you? What are, what, are you th what are your thoughts on any potential recession in Europe and what the impact would be to your holdings? Yeah, we, we use the exact same philosophy and process. You know, we're, we're looking at mid-cycle, um, you know, Jeb, as you, as you summarized, really, we're trying to incorporate that, that normal operating performance through a cycle. And then we're looking at that tail risk. And trying to, you know, what you know, what is that tail risk and focusing on that downside protection. So stress testing profitability and capital for various credit environments. Uh, Mike mentioned, you know, stress testing from 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 um, the regulators, which is which is helpful and in, in informing those views and opinions. But you know, really looking at stress testing that that level of profitability and capital. Uh, also focused, you know, on the banks that have lower risk loan portfolios. 
Uh, our banks also have excess capital and reserves. So, you know, with, with, with very strong management teams with, uh, you know, a history of, of excellent underwriting track records. So these are all things that we do to try to mitigate risk uh, before investing in the business is really trying to look at those, those controls and, and then when, you know, to value the business stress testing uh, those scenarios. Maybe an example would be helpful here as, as Mike talked about, you know, Bank of America. If I look on the international side, Lloyd's, it's uh, Lloyd's Bank's one of our largest uh, bank holding, uh, bank holdings. It's uh, headquartered in the UK. Has a loan portfolio that's very conservatively underwritten. Uh, 68% of the loan book is residential mortgages. The average loan to value is 42% on on that on that that uh, mortgage portfolio. So that provides an enormous cushion against potential losses if there was a downturn in the real estate market. Uh, you know, another 21% of the loan book is corporate. Uh, Mike mentioned, you know, CRE being a, a risk exposure that we've been in, you know, spending time on. CRE is only 2.4% of group loans, and the average loan to value there is 44%. So, really trying to find those those businesses that have the not only the, the advantage funding profile, but a low risk asset, um, you know, low risk loan portfolio, low risk asset base that can really navigate through some of these uncertain periods. Okay, great. Thanks to both of you for your answers on that. That's really insightful. Mike, I'm going to switch back over to you. The banks in the U.S. trade on average at anywhere from 8 to 10 times P ratio. The market is at roughly 16 to 17 X. Why do you think there is such a large discount? And what do you think is a fairer multiple for these banks? Yeah, the the banks have, <clears throat> excuse me, the banks have long traded at a discount to the market. Um, I think there's a number of reasons. You know, many parts of the business are commoditized. Um, they're very economically sensitive businesses, and and the returns on equity are typically below the average company in the S and P 500. So we usually don't use uh, a market multiple when valuing our banks. Um, what's interesting is that the relative PE ratio of the large banks versus the S and P 500 has dropped uh, to near 30-year lows. I mean, it used to trade that group uh, at about 75% of the market's multiple. But today, um, it's trading around 45% of a market multiple. Um, and in our view, a, a high-performing bank with a mid-teens return on tangible common equity should, re, should be worth around two times tangible book value. Uh, if you look at the private market values for bank transactions since 2015, the average, the average multiple was about two times tangible book. You know, most of our financials trade around one times tangible book today. So we think there's you know, a lot of fear currently embedded within the share prices and um, and a lot of a lot of upside potential longer term if if we're right, um, you know as I mentioned earlier, investors have been have been pretty quick to to penalize the banks for for fears of increasing regulation, um, and we think increased regulation is highly likely as well in the U.S. But you know higher capital and liquidity requirements aren't uh, unequivocally bad for banks. It should make them safer, and there are there are rough examples of other highly regulated industries say. Uh, utilities that on average earn lower returns on tangible equity than our big banks do, but they currently trade for a market multiple. Um, you know, it's it's wishful thinking to assume that our banks will will someday fetch a, a similar multiple to utility. But you know, there's a there's a lot of room be between where they trade and and um, you know where our banks are currently priced. That you don't need that gap to to fully close. Just just narrow a bit would would generate a pretty compelling return. So, so clearly, you see a lot of opportunity in the banks uh, today. Um, Jason, I'm going to switch over to you. Uh, now, European banks trade at uh, even lower multiples than U.S. banks. And why do you think that is? 
And what do you think needs to happen in order to get those multiples off what are effectively near historic lows? Yeah, great question. That's it's very true, uh, Jeb. Uh, you know, maybe first of all, we we believe that the large U.S. banks should, as a group, trade at a premium to the large European banks. Uh, given the, lar- the the U.S. banks have a structurally higher growth rate, structurally higher returns on capital. Uh, that said, as you point out, I mean the valuation gap between the two is widened considerably, and the European European banking sector trades at a relative discount that is near an all-time high. Um, and maybe to put some figures around this enormous discount, the European banking industry currently trades at about six and a half times price to earnings, uh, about 0.8 times price to tangible book value for a return on tangible equity of around 12%. That's a 40% discount to where it, that, that in European banking industry is traded historically. So 40% discount to historical averages. In contrast, the U.S. banks are trading at a roughly 35% premium to the European banks, on a price to earnings basis, about 50% on a price to tangible book value, and they have a return on tangible equity that's about 15 to 20% higher. So, you know, European banks are clearly cheap on a historic basis, uh, you know, and then also on a relative basis, I'd say as well. But in this, this strong, also strong excess capital position for the European banks, coupled with the weak share price movement that we discussed earlier, has resulted in expected a dividend yield of over 7% for the European banks. So an extremely high dividend yield. So investors are being paid to wait right now, being paid very well to wait right now. Um, so it's clear that the European banking sector is cheap. As to what is needed for the market to more fully appreciate the value of European banks, uh, I'd point to two potential possibilities. Uh, one, that investors start to appreciate the much stronger capital, liquidity, and overall financial position of the European banking sector versus previous periods. Uh, you know, Successfully navigating the current period of uncertainty uh, should help alleviate these concerns. Number two, I would say that the high free capital yields should entice fundamental investors. So while the sector is trading at a 7% dividend yield, the banks are also returning a similar amount of capital via share buybacks. So if we look at two of our our larger holdings, BNP and Lloyds, uh, we estimate that both of these banks could return nearly 90% of their current market cap to shareholders over the next five years while simultaneously growing absolute net income. So these enormous capital returns to shareholders will force investors to take notice and could prove to be the ultimate catalyst for multiple expansion. Great. Just just one follow-up for you, Jason. Uh, What do you think about the attractiveness of European banks where you have a number of holdings versus Japanese banks or banks in emerging markets, for example? Yes. Well, we have we have investments in in both Japanese and EM fin- emerging market financials. Uh, the the valuations aren't nearly as attractive, so they have been they're rel- there's much smaller weightings in our portfolios. Uh, we've been that said, we've been actively monitoring several higher quality EM banking institutions in hopes that we can take advantage of potential market volatility, but we're finding the preponderance of value within the European region at the moment. Okay. Great. Great. Um, this last question is, is is for both of you, and, and it's frankly, are there any any final thoughts either of you have, um, Jason, since we've been going with you? Why don't, why don't you go if you have any final conclu- conclusions or thoughts? Yeah, final thoughts are really just the banks that we own, the European banks that we own 
are, are different to those that have faced recent challenges. You know, whether you look at the idiosyncratic risks that have faced Credit Suisse or some of the, you know, idiosyncratic issues that have faced some of the smaller regional banks in the U.S., uh, our European uh, banks that we own are, are, are very different. They have strong deposit franchises, excess capital. They're beneficiaries of the flight to quality. Um, also, I'd say that the, the market likes to paint all European banks with the same brush. We think this is wrong and short-sighted, uh, and it does provide opportunity for the active investor. So we've been able to find businesses that we think are not only of higher quality, uh, but also of, of, of lower risk, given their strong balance sheets and, and their deposit franchises, their capital positions, um, and, and, and historically cheap on a price earnings and price of tangible book value basis. So um, we think the valuations are very attractive, and, and our bank holdings are actually taking advantage of some of these lower share prices by actively repurchasing shares at more attractive prices. All three of our, our, our three largest holdings on the uh, European bank side are all actively repurchasing shares in the market. Thanks, Jason. And Mike, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, I, I think um, I think Jason said it well. I mean, the first thing is we don't freeze in situations like this when we see um, some turmoil in the market. You know, we we try to use um, the stock price volatility to our advantage, and we're also looking for new opportunities to try to uncover new attractive investment opportunities and, and to capitalize on on situations that that we do think are being painted with a broad brush. Um, you know, we, we like the banks that we own a lot. We think they're trading, um, you know, at very, very attractive levels. Hopefully that came through in today's discussion. Um, but I also want to make another point that, you know, we, we have a lot of financials exposure in our, um, in our funds at Harris, but it's not all just traditional banks either. Um, the exposures that we have within financials are, are really highly diversified by business model and risk profile. And we like these individual securities, not because they're labeled as, as financials or banks, but because we think they're cheap on an absolute standalone basis. So um, just wanted to make sure that I, um, that I clarified that as well. Yeah, that's crystal clear, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> yep. Thank you, Jason and Mike, for sharing these interesting perspectives with us today. And thank you to our listeners for taking the time out of your busy days. For more investing insight from Oakmark Portfolio Managers, I encourage you to listen to their quarterly manager podcasts on im.netixis.com. Important information. Definitions of terms used in this material. GFC refers to the global financial crisis of 2008. CET1. Common equity tier 1. Ratio compares a bank's capital against its risk-weighted assets to determine its ability to withstand financial distress. NIM refers to net interest margin. The amount of money a bank is earning in interest on loans compared to the amount it is paying in interest on deposit. ECB refers to the European Central Bank. The Central Bank of the European Union countries which have adopted the euro. CRE refers to commercial real estate. CFA and Chartered Financial Analyst, Registered Sign, are registered trademarks owned by the CFA Institute. S&P 500 Index is a widely recognized measure of U.S. stock market performance. It is an unmanaged index of 500 common stocks chosen for market size, liquidity, and industry group representation, among other factors. It also measures the performance of the large cap segment of the U.S. equities market. The price-to-earnings ratio, P.E., compares a company's current share price to its per-share earnings. It may also be known as the price multiple or earnings multiple and gives a general indication of how expensive or cheap a stock is. Investors should not base investment decisions on any single attribute or characteristic data point. 
Price to cash flow is defined as a stock's capitalization divided by its cash flow for the latest fiscal year. The price to book ratio is a stock's capitalization divided by its book value. The views and opinions expressed may change based on market and other conditions. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Investment risk exists with equity, fixed income, and alternative investments. There is no assurance that any investment will meet its performance objectives or that losses will be avoided. Investing in foreign securities presents risks that in some ways may be greater than in US investments. Those risks include currency fluctuation, different regulation, accounting standards, trading practices and levels of available information, generally higher transaction costs, and political risks. Investing in value stocks presents the risk that value stocks may fall out of favor with investors and underperform growth stocks during given periods. The specific securities identified and described in this podcast do not represent all the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to advisory clients. There is no assurance that any securities discussed herein will remain in an accounts portfolio at the time one receives this report or that securities sold have not been repurchased. It should not be assumed that any of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein were or will prove to be profitable. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. You may obtain a prospectus or a summary prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully. Top 10 Portfolio Holdings for the Oakmark International Fund as of March 31, 2023. Mercedes-Benz Group. 3.13% of portfolio, BNP Paribas, 3.09% of portfolio, Intesa San Paolo, 3.01% of portfolio, Lloyds Banking Group, 2.94% of portfolio, BMW, 2.67% of portfolio, Bayer, 2.64% of portfolio, Continental, 2.62% of portfolio, Alliance, 2.55% of portfolio, Alibaba Group, 2.41% of portfolio, Process, 2.29% of portfolio, Top 10 Portfolio Holdings for the Oakmark International Small Cap Fund as of March 31, 2023, Conic 3.61% of portfolio, Azimut Holding, 3.30% of portfolio, Julius Bayer Group, 3.09% of portfolio, Fluidra, 3.02% of portfolio, Travis Perkins, 3.01% of portfolio, Software AG, 2.97% of portfolio, Addy, 2.90% of portfolio, Dur, 2.82% of portfolio, St. James's Place, 2.63% of portfolio, A Plus Services, 2.57% of portfolio, Top 10 Holdings, Percent, for the Oakmark Fund as of March 31, 2023, Alphabet CLA, 3.90% of portfolio, KKR, 3.42% of portfolio, Oracle, 2.95% of portfolio, Amazon.com, 2.68% of portfolio, Salesforce, 2.66% of portfolio, Wells Fargo, 2.52% of portfolio, Meta Platform CLA, 2.47% of portfolio, Citigroup, 2.45% of portfolio, Capital One Financial, 2.41% of portfolio, Intercontinental Exchange, 2.38% of portfolio, Top 10 Holdings, Percent, for the Oakmark Select Fund as of March 31, 2023, Alphabet CLA, 10.85% of portfolio, Oracle, 7.34% of portfolio, Salesforce, 6.88% of portfolio, First Citizens BCSHSCLA, 6.84% of portfolio, CBRE Group CLA, 6.01% of portfolio, Lithia Motor CLA, 5.87% of portfolio, KKR, 5.68% of portfolio, Amazon.com, 5.67% of portfolio, Intercontinental Exchange, 5.08% of portfolio, Capital One Financial, 4.90% of portfolio. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed are as of May 8, 
2023 and may change based on market and other conditions. Natixis Distribution, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, is a marketing agent for the Oakmark Funds, a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Add tracks. 56365831111 expiration date July 31st 2023 POD 200 April 2023